On this emergency episode of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast, we react to the Trump indictment. The president's so nice, they indicted him thrice. That and our debate prep with Chris Christie's debating past. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome to an emergency episode of Politics, Politics, Politics for Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm Justin Robert Young. Oh boy. All right. So this is going to be the episode that was supposed to come out on Friday, but we're putting it out now because obviously there is news now and it's because we're at peak indictment. This is the most indicted that Donald Trump will be in terms of things that could happen. I'll get to that in a second, but here's the news. Donald Trump has indeed been indicted once more, according to a 45-page document made public on Tuesday. The indictment revolves around Trump's actions after the 2020 election results with the specific focus on the events at the Capitol during the January 6th certification, but not specifically The riot. Generally, conspiracy cases of which Trump is accused of center on claims that involve parties conspiring to act against specific federal criminal regulation. However, that is not the case. Two out of the four charges leveled against Trump differ from that typical pattern. One charge accuses him of plotting to defraud the United States, while another points to a conspiracy to infringe on civil rights. Interestingly, the civil rights charge draws its origin from a law established in 1870, implemented in the wake of the Civil War. It's commonly referred to as the first Ku Klux Klan Act. This law was primarily targeted at white supremacists and those hindering black Americans voting rights. Modern times, this law is often used against law enforcement officials Involved in alleged misconduct. The current indictment suggests that Trump and his associates aim to disrupt the constitutional rights of individuals, especially their right to vote and have their votes counted. The other noteworthy charge is the allegation of a conspiracy to defraud the United States. While this isn't frequently encountered, it is not rare either. It's sometimes referred to as the Klein Conspiracy, named after the 1957 Supreme Court ruling. Charges predominantly seen in tax-related prosecutions, but can also surface in cases dealing with efforts to disrupt the operations of federal bodies, something that the Department of Justice believes Donald Trump did with the certification of the 2020 election. So instead of stating that Trump interfered directly with the federal institutions, the indictment suggests that Trump employed, quote, deceit, fraud, and dishonesty, unquote, to hinder the federal process of collecting, counting, and certifying the presidential election results. This Klein conspiracy charge is familiar for those who followed Robert Mueller's case against Paul Manafort and Robert Gates, Trump's 2016 campaign aides. 
in relation to their attempts to challenge the tax and foreign agent registration legislations. But beyond those two charges are two more conventional ones. Both are relating to obstruction of an official process, specifically the January 6th session for the electoral vote count and certification. Many individuals involved in the January 6th events have already been prosecuted and convicted for similar offenses. Now, let me say this first and foremost. The podcast is called Politics, Politics, Politics. It's not called Law, law, law. And so I can only go by what I have gathered are other legal expert opinions on this that I've seen both after the indictment dropped and before the indictment dropped. Having read the 45-page indictment myself, I don't know whether or not Donald Trump is going to be convicted. Well, I have a guess, and I'll get to that at the end. I will only say, as a commentator, that I have watched my entire life as elections have come and gone. Some of them are quieter, and some of them are louder. Sometimes there are legal challenges. And sometimes there are legal challenges for which the eventual winning side say, Went too far. To remove a little bit of my objectivity here, I will say that I can sympathize with folks who find what Donald Trump did after the 2020 election to be morally abhorrent. And if you find the American democratic system to be sacred, I would even go so far as to say it might be evil. I understand that. That's your perspective. He kicked it pretty hard and wanted to see if he could have another term fall out like some kind of dilapidated Coke machine. But that's not the question. This is not a moral judgment. This is a legal judgment. And when two of these charges rely on things we have not seen before and we are trying a case for which we have no actual precedent, then I would be wary of anybody who is too sure about what's going to happen. And so that is where my legal thoughts on this will end. I would encourage anybody who has legal analysis to email in theyoungamerican at gmail.com if there are any precedents that you believe will play out in a situation like this, if I get enough good emails, maybe I'll do another episode on Friday compiling some of the best. But let's look at this politically. And let's understand how we got here. Number one, every time Donald Trump has been indicted, his poll numbers have gone up. The Republican electorate, at the very least, believes that this is a weaponized Department of Justice system that has timed these investigations and these indictments to when Donald Trump was running so they can take out a political opponent. It appears that the more they put him in legal peril, the more popular he becomes with not only his core 37% MAGA audience, 
but also Trump leaners. This has come at the expense of pretty much everybody else in the field. Ron DeSantis on down. That being said, I do believe that this week represents peak indictment. Meaning, and I guess the night's still young, but as of now, based on the cases that we knew were percolating for Donald Trump, this appears to be the end of the will they won't they. Yes, there still is a Georgia case, but in terms of the information that we would be learning from these indictments, that will largely be a rehash of stuff that is even in this case, specifically the call from Donald Trump to Brad Raffensperger. I am skeptical that this will change anybody's mind about January 6th or Donald Trump's plans, schemes, his, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I believe that there is a quote in this indictment where one of Trump's campaign aides refers to the unindicted co-conspirators in this, which are in some order, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, et al. As the super elite legal team, I've been referring to them as the Apple Dumpling Gang, the gang that can't shoot straight. That as Donald Trump was told news he did not want to hear from more respected legal and political minds that he had indeed lost the election and it was time for him to shift into a mode where he protected his legacy so he might run again in 2024, he turned to people that would tell him what he wanted to hear. And that was that he didn't lose because it is in my personal opinion that Donald Trump does not view winning and losing as something that is governed by a scoreboard. He views losing as the absence of attempting to win. And so, faced with shortening odds, he looked to people that had wilder ideas. I believe all of this is baked into our political landscape as we see it. I don't believe that a trial, I don't believe that a Coverage around this is going to do any more than January 6th did itself. The impeachment of Donald Trump for the riot of January 6th did. The January 6th commission, which dominated last summer. Or this case now. I believe that we have wrung every bit of juice from the January 6th orange. It is tapped. It is dried. I don't think anyone, anybody's learning anything new from this. I will also say that I tend to believe that the GOP primary, barring, barring a health-related change, is effectively over. Now, this is kind of a duh compared to our conversation that we had with Bill Share last week. But... You know, it is what it is, what it is. If Donald Trump is indeed Jesus Christ on the cross, it's going to be hard for another Christian to petition to lead the group. He is persecuted. 
And indeed, they have put another nail in his arm for Diet Coke to leak out. Now, a prediction. I don't know if we are going to have the documents case heard by the time that the election happens in 2024. I don't know what the hell is going to happen in that New York indictment. But I believe that this case is going to get heard. I believe it's going to get heard faster. I believe that it's going to be heard louder. And I believe Donald Trump will be convicted for this. I believe that Donald Trump will appeal and it will work its way up until it is eventually decided by the Supreme Court. That is what I believe. I don't know what happens from there, but I think Washington, D.C., a Washington, D.C. jury and a Washington, D.C. judge will not be particularly lenient to Donald Trump. I don't believe that they will view Donald Trump's legal team's complaints that this is going to be political interference or that it, it needs to be slow walked. I don't think that it's, they're going to find that sympathetic. And this is just gut feeling. I believe a jury is going to convict him. I don't know on what, but this is something that I believe will be a win for Jack Smith and the Department of Justice in, in, in the initial case. Where it goes when it goes up the chain, who knows? But that's it. That's my thoughts on it. Um, obviously, the the uh, rhetoric around this is what it is. I think that in in a lot of ways, we you know the the voting populace kind of has a little indictment fatigue. <laughs> you know, I, I I think that there is there's some political. Idea. Well, no, this is going to get me in trouble if I compare the the Department of Justice to the House Republicans with Benghazi or Hunter. But like, there's a more is more attitude in general. More indictments are better because he is guilty of crimes. I saw a poll that came out today that 38 percent of the Republican electorate believes that Donald Trump committed some crime. And the funny thing is, I think his political numbers will continue to go up. Because they're going to look at this as a political persecution. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get bonus episodes. This time you're going to get a bonus episode tomorrow. Well, you always get a bonus episode on Thursday. But anything that breaks between now and then, you will know exclusively. So if there's any new stuff that breaks about this particular case, you're going to know it when you go. 
to take politics seriously, you sign up at the $3 level, or if you're smart enough to have done it already, then you get the custom RSS feed, you put it in the podcast player of your choice, and you never have to think about logging into anything again. It just downloads to you. Now let's get in to the update. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Sophie Trudeau are separating after 18 years of marriage. The pair announced Wednesday in a statement published to both of their Instagram accounts. The two wed in 2005 in what was often described as a storybook marriage. Their 2004 engagement was front page news in Canada, uniting two rising celebrities. Trudeau, the son of an iconic former prime minister and a glamorous television host, in Quebec, Gregory. The pair have three children together, Xavier, 15, Ella Grace, 14, and Adrian, 9. You know, not much to say here. Uh, divorces and separations are not the scandal that they once used to be in politics. It is interesting to see these things kind of uh, uh, come and go on a different level. And now... Ooh, single Trudeau. You know, there was a rumor that Kylie broke up with uh, Timothy Chalamet. That would be amazing. Data Kardashian, Justin. Data Kardashian. Fitch ratings on Tuesday downgraded America's long-term foreign currency rating, citing the country's deteriorating fiscal position and frequently chaotic process driving governing decisions. Fitch cut the country's default rating from the pristine AAA to the next level down, AA+. The ratings agency said rising debt levels and a polarized political culture is making the U.S. a less dependable payer of its debts. The agency had previously cut the country, or sorry, put the country on downgrade watch. Although largely symbolic, Fitch's decision signals Washington's, quote, steady deterioration in standards of government over the past 20 years, including on fiscal and debt matters. Of course, the last debt ceiling standoff was marked by weeks of infighting and uncertainty that brought the world's largest economy to the brink of default. Although, look, this is I'm reading this from Axios. Like, well, how are we going to define brink of default? Last time we actually shut down the government. And we really came to the brink of default back in the 2010s. This was like to the, you know, we could see the exit that leads to default. This was not to the brink of default. The eventual agreement only postponed that day of reckoning until 2025. Of course, in 2011, Standard & Poor's famously cut the U.S.'s credit rating from AAA to AA+, a controversial episode that marked the country's first ever downgrade, which temporarily riled Wall Street. This was met with pointing fingers. Uh, Donald Trump pointing out that uh, it was Joe Biden under Joe Biden that our debt rating was cut. And Joe Biden saying it was January 6th. January 6th is the reason why the standard was cut. Reminds me of a great Joe Biden line. Talking about Rudy Giuliani before he was unindicted co-conspirator number one. When Rudy Giuliani was running for president, Joe Biden said, every sentence Rudy says is the same. A noun, a verb, and 9-11. 
And it, it reminds me of the Biden administration. Every sentence is the same. A noun, a verb, and January 6th. Devin Archer said in an interview with Tucker Carlson that his former business associate, Hunter Biden's moves to put his father, then the vice president on speakerphone in front of a foreign business associate were, quote, an abuse of soft power. The first installment of Archer's interview with the former Fox News host was released today, Wednesday, as I am recording this, two days after he sat for a closed-door interview with the House Oversight Committee and testified that Hunter Biden put his father on speakerphone with other people about 20 times over the course of the decade. I watched this interview, and while I am not the biggest Tucker fan, and I think he has a tendency to over-laugh, over-laughing, very 2023 moment between he and DeSantis. It was very interesting, mostly because Tucker Carlson is indeed a child and adult of DC. And Devin Archer, who comes from the world of private equity, was somebody that was getting to know the world of DC when he made a business relationship with Hunter Biden. But one of the things that they both agree on is that DC is not a money town. DC is an influence town. DC is a town where money shows up so it can buy influence. And Devin Archer is pretty clear that that was what Hunter Biden's worth to their partnership was. He's not an operations guy. He's not a legal mind. He was not working in the legal departments of the places that they were working. He was selling access. Now, we can talk probably more specifically about exactly what access means. It doesn't necessarily mean graft. It, it, it means oftentimes more regulatory passage. But. When you're talking with foreign governments and foreign companies and foreign owned companies, that can get a little tricky. And that apparently is what Devin Archer is going to talk more about and did specifically talk about in the House Oversight Committee. All that being said, I think it's interesting to watch. You do have to keep an eye out for Devin Archer. He did have a falling out with the Biden family. So you got to imagine that there is an axe to grind there. But. Specifically, just in the idea of access being a commodity in Washington, D.C., I think it's worth watching. And it's quick. It's 10 minutes. Even if you hate Tucker Carlson, I don't think that you'll uh, you'll despise it. In fact, Jen Briney, who is not a Tucker Carlson fan in our We're Not Wrong uh, group chat, I posted it and she said, oh, we're on the same wavelength. I just watched it and I didn't think it was bad. So. You know, for for whatever it's worth for Jen Briney. Go ahead and listen. That'll wrap it up for us on our update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you need to go. Sign up at the $3 level. Two bonus episodes. We're in new season, baby. And now back to the show. You always know what your opponent's got to say. Because they've already told you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? For debate prep? Oh, yeah. Chris Christie debate prep. 
Let me bring you back to October 15th, 2013, a reminder that New Jersey has those weird gubernatorial elections like Virginia, where they're like the only thing that happens after a presidential election cycle. I'm going to bring you into the second of two debates. It is less than a year after the peak of Christie's popularity in the wake of Hurricane Sandy and his work with the Obama administration. This is around the time when he and Cory Booker are are both super silly boys who are making grainy Facebook videos together showing that bipartisanship is on the rise in Obama's America. Let me point this out to you. Because this is the first question of this debate. Not about his record. It's about Chris Christie's tenor. You have gotten a strong reputation nationally as a problem solver, as a consensus builder, as a bipartisan leader. But in the first administration, you've referred to a number of your Democratic opponents in the legislature by some pretty strong terms. You called Assemblywoman Huddle a jerk. You called Senator Smith a joke. You said that you asked reporters if they could take a bat out to Senator Weinberg. You called one reporter an idiot, which sometimes is justified, I guess. But you also called Assemblywoman Gashora numbnuts. My question to you, sir, is this. Do you regret the language you used in referring to some of your opponents? And would a second term be any different from a first in terms of rhetoric? Uh, no, Mike, it wouldn't. And. You know, the fact is that when uh, folks act in a certain manner, um, they know I'm going to call them out and do it. The important thing for the people of New Jersey to know is that it hasn't prevented us from doing all the things that you talked about in the preface to your question, uh, which is to work across the aisle with Republicans and Democrats to be able to make sure that we got things done for the people of New Jersey. Um, Things like $120 billion in pension and benefit reform, a bipartisan approach, property tax cap, bipartisan budgets that we've passed that have also been bipartisan. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. I think the most important thing is that folks know that I am who I am. Um, They know that when I tell them something, I'm telling them the truth as I see it, and I'm not going to mince words about it. I think that's the way most people in New Jersey are, at least in my growing up in this state for the last 51 years, and they're not going to see anything different from Chris Christie in the second term if I'm lucky enough to have one. This is debate prep, so I'm going to get into Chris Christie's performance first. He doesn't back down. He reframes around his accomplishments. He declares the negatives of the question a positive. This is a good answer. But it couldn't help but remind me of another question that happened not but two years later. It was a Cleveland night in 2015 when Megyn Kelly had a similar style question for political novice Donald John Trump. Mr. Trump, one of the things people love about you is you speak your mind and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. Thank you. For the record, 
it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. Your Twitter account has several disparaging comments about women's looks. You once told a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice it would be a pretty picture to see her on her knees. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? And how will you answer the charge from Hillary Clinton, who is likely to be the Democratic nominee, that you are part of the war on women? I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I don't believe that Chris Christie has any shot to win the GOP nomination. But I do believe he thinks he can damage Donald Trump. And I believe he believes this because he believes he is closest in temperament and charisma to Donald Trump. We're going to get more into exactly that dynamic at the end. But let's keep going with the clips here. Here's a question about what would eventually be Christie's undoing in New Jersey. We are at a particularly sunny moment in his career in the Garden State, but yet just beginning to bubble up during this campaign is a question about Bridgegate and his opponent, State Senator Buono, answering a question about the amount of Democrats who have endorsed him. Can you tell some of the people out there who may wonder... If you can't lead your own party, how would you lead the state? How long do I have? You have a minute. <laughs> well, Governor Christie represents the, the worst combination of bully and bossism, and that's what has motivated some of these elected Democrats to support him. Witness the closure, the unexplained closure of two lanes starting in Fort Lee going over the GW Bridge. We have no idea why they closed, but it, it caused a traffic snarl up in Fort Lee, and there's an investigation. And well, lo and behold, the mayor of Fort Lee is a Democrat, and he has not endorsed the governor. This governor accepted the endorsement. He embraced a political boss of Essex County. And you know what, governor? You can have that endorsement. This is somebody who used his campaign funds to take supporters to Puerto Rico to go to the Super Bowl. You're not interested in cleaning up that boardwalk empire of New Jersey bosses and that backroom politics. You're just interested in getting their endorsements, getting the backing of their political machine, and looking the other way. And that's the kind of backroom politics that I'm running against to end. Governor? Well, listen, let's be real direct about this. Joe DiVincenzo sitting right in the front row, and I'm proud to have his endorsement, and you wish you did. And secondly, and secondly, and secondly, and secondly, and secondly, you have, I think, a significant amount of nerve, Senator after you stood up on the floor of the state senate in 2009 and said that Joe Spacuzzo was going to bring honor and integrity to the sports authority, and now he sits in jail from the corrupt Middlesex Democratic organization for selling jobs and selling promotions, a political ally of yours, a friend of yours who you stood up for and supported. So, you know, you want to start throwing stones tonight, you better get out of your glass house. Time, time. Our next, our next question. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. That, uh, excuse me. If you want it, if you want it. All right. We're not going to tolerate that. We're not going to tolerate that here this evening. The candidates will get their respect and the candidates will be allowed to speak. And if you cannot control yourself, then you will be asked to leave. All right. Our next question will come from uh, and uh, we will handle that appropriately. Thank you for uh, most of the audience for obeying this. Uh, next question will come from uh, Ron Allen from NBC News. And how about that little Jersey shouting match at the end? huh? <laughs> 
Here he is getting another tough question about corruption in New Jersey politics. Governor, as U.S. attorney, you made a name for yourself prosecuting politically corrupt politicians. As a candidate for governor in 2009, you railed against the Corzine machine and talked about those Democratic Party bosses and promised to turn Trenton upside down. Yet you forged alliances with several of the strongest Democratic Party bosses in the state, including South Jersey Democratic boss George Norcross, who was the subject of a 2004 investigation in your U.S. Attorney Office. And you just boasted tonight of the endorsement of Joe DiVincenzo, who is the subject of a 13-count complaint by the Election Law Enforcement Commission. My question to you is, how is forging alliances with these Democratic Party bosses consistent with your promise to turn Trenton upside down? Yeah, well, it really has turned Trenton upside down. Bridget, as you've seen, property taxes are lower now um, because of the work that we've done. We've worked together um, to make sure that the pension and benefit system was reformed. That was a bipartisan accomplishment. We've worked together to balance four budgets in a row without any new taxes on anyone. And all of, the, all of that work has been bipartisan. And I'm proud of that record. And I'm proud to have forged relationships with all of the folks that I need to forge relationships with in order to be able to run the government in a way that's more effective and efficient for the people of New Jersey. You see, in the end, everybody, people talk about bipartisanship, but they don't know how to do it. What I've shown over the last four years is how to do it how to work with Democrats and Republicans to get things done. And the proof in the pudding is that 50 elected Democratic officials in this state have openly endorsed me because we've been able to run the government in a way that's made them proud. I'm proud of that record, Bridget. I wouldn't change one thing. Senator, go ahead. Yes, as I said, the governor is, is part of the problem. The political bosses are, are living in fear that I might get elected as governor because I wasn't elected to serve their narrow political and business interests. They're afraid because if I get elected, I'm going to answer to one entity, and that's all of you. You know, I'm tough. I got to this position without having anybody hand it to me, and I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm here for the middle class and for the working poor, and I am not here to serve the narrow political interests of any political boss, and I think this governor is part of the problem. New Jersey's one of those states where, you know, everybody runs against corruption. It's crazy, right, that everybody's running against corruption, but nobody's corrupt, but everybody's constantly running against corruption. I do think that there are some states for which it just is impossible to run for president from because the state politics are so toxic that you can't rise to the top without getting dirty. And New Jersey might be one of them. New York's another one where where it's just anybody who comes out of New York, you just have such such knife fights that that you're just always going to be handicapped by the thing that happened in the past. Here is, and and remember, at this moment, Chris Christie is so popular that everyone is assuming with Obama already reelected in 2012 that Christie is a bona fide presidential slam dunk to run, right? And and a lot of this debate is based around, okay, are you doing this for New Jersey or are you doing this for your political campaign? But here is a buono attack on Christie for being 
too ambitious. On, on the, the possibility or the probability of the governor running for president. You know, at the last debate, he said he, he kind of dismissed it and said, well, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, Governor, is it what part of that is running New Jersey, walking or chewing gum? And I think that you're trivializing the whole issue. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I'd really like to know if you could balance the budget and not do it on the backs of the working poor. I'd also like to know if you could reform education and not do it vilifying teachers. But the fact of the matter is, this governor is running. We know it. He's already gone. And I think that we ought to return the favor on November 5th. Governor, you could respond? Sure. Um, Matt, let me tell you, I'm really proud of the lieutenant governor. And she's done an extraordinary job over the last four years. Uh, she appears publicly all the time. And if you and the press would show up, she answers questions from you all the time. Um, my understanding is you guys just never show up to see her. Um, the fact is, she is one of the most available, accessible, and, and publicly successful political figures we have in this state. And if you talk to anybody in the business community, what they'll tell you is that Kim Guadano has been a leader in making sure that the business community does well here and that we create jobs for the people of New Jersey. I'm proud of her, and she'd do a great job and will do a great job in the next four years as lieutenant governor. All right. These are all interesting to look at where Christie was and see how he is responding to things. And by and large, I do think Christie is a very good debater and people for whom have only seen him in very contentious, very animated national situations don't understand, at least in this moment, how likable he was. I don't know if he'll ever be this likable again because his poll numbers are really high in this moment, but let's illustrate a little bit of Christie's timing. We talk a lot about in debates, timing. Timing is everything. Which, by the way, somebody, I, I, I talked on the PX3 episode about Obama being like low-key, just a little S when it came to his snipes. He is, he is a sniper. He is just like, you look back on it now and you're like, oh, you're just an a-hole. But he gets away with it because he's likable. And somebody sent me a, 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 another clip that I had forgotten about Obama being asked how, if he has so many ex-Clinton advisors, why his policy was going to be different than the Clinton administration. And Hillary pipes up and says, oh, I want to hear you answer this one. Obama takes a beat. And says, well, Hillary, I'm looking forward to you advising me, too. Bah! Another world he'd be looked at as a total ding-dong. But he was likable. He was new. He was exciting. There is something to those timing moments. And here's one that, that, that Christie has. It's a moment where he catches a bad stumble by his opponent and then picks it up. And puts it right in her face. This is, uh, just pay attention to the phrase, in retrospect. Can I follow up? Uh, yes. the, the millionaire's tax is estimated to raise about $685 million, maybe a little more. 
that wouldn't have plugged the $2 billion hole, so you would have had to cut something as well. What? Well, you know, when I was budget chair, I, we figured it out. We were in the middle of the global meltdown, you know, and, and to, to, uh, to discuss that in retrospect is difficult to do, but I can tell you what I did when I was budget chair. When we were in the middle of a global meltdown and revenues were falling through the floor, we were able to figure it out and prioritize and cut $4.5 billion. And I can tell you, education would be the last place I cut. Governor? Yeah. Well, listen, Senator Buono did prioritize. What she did was spend and spend and spend and then leave us to fix her problem. And so, Michael, listen, my view on this is very simple. When you're governor, you have to make tough decisions and you have to be able to defend them in retrospect. Um, I am absolutely comfortable with the decisions I made given the problems that I was left with by Governor Corzine and the Senate budget chair, Senator Buono, who even said in the aftermath when there was a billion-dollar problem that we realized in December, she said, well, I'm not surprised at this that. This doesn't matter a lot to voters, in my opinion. I think it does stick in the head of political aficionados. And in general, I do think that it is something that flusters opponents. So if you get somebody... I think that they're going to react differently the further you go along in the debate. If you can remember Elizabeth Warren's absolute dismembering of Michael Bloomberg in his first debate, I think that was a failure to launch on so many levels. And Bloomberg's performance, whatever it was going to be, was just absolutely not there because he was so flustered by what happened to him. And now, more people yelling, because it's New Jersey. Wasn't the first time I was, uh, hey, well, here we go again. We, we have a choice. We, we have a choice here, ladies and gentlemen. We have a choice. You can talk all night long and guarantee you that I'll talk over you, so you're not going to be heard. So that, you, there's a way to get your message across, ma'am, and this is not the time or the place or the way. So run for office, get your own debate. Uh, Bridget Harrison. Here's Christie going on offense in a segment where he's allowed to ask a question to Buono. And we should take them to task. Senator, it is now that time for you to take a question from Governor Christie. Thank you, Mike. Um, Senator, we've examined your education plan, and it calls for $3 billion in additional funding. And all you've said in terms of how you're going to pay for it, as you've said tonight, you're going to pay for increased property tax rebates. Um, is the $650 million from the millionaire's tax. So my question for you is, how are you going to fund the other $2.3 billion? Are you going to raise the sales tax again like you did on the poor in 2006? Very quick, very quick. And, and I want to point that out because I think he knew that he didn't want to be brutal to her. He wanted to be firm, but he didn't want to be mean. I think at that point, he was very well liked. He didn't want to be looked at as a bully. He wanted to be looked at as plain spoken. And so he didn't just want to be an a-hole to her. So things were quick. He didn't, you know, he kept things very, very dry in these direct candidate questions, of which he got three. None of them were particularly interesting except for that one. I wanted to play that one for you. Here's Christy on the defensive. This is him being asked about gay marriage. Remember when that was an issue? Governor Christie, one of the omnipresent faces of this campaign has been that of Senator Buono's daughter, Tessa Bitterman, who is gay and who has fought for the issue of marriage equality in the state of New Jersey. I, I want to ask you if Andrew or Sarah or Patrick or Bridget came to you and said, Daddy, I'm gay and I want to marry the love of my life. What would you say to them? Well, listen, if my children came to me 
and said that they were gay, I would grab them and hug them and tell them I love them, just like I would do with any of my children who came to me with news that they wanted to give to me that they thought were important enough to open themselves up in that way. But what I would also tell them is that dad believes that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that's my position. And my children understand that there are going to be differences of opinion in our house and in houses all across this state and across this country. And if, in fact, at the end of the day, the people of New Jersey were given the opportunity to vote and voted differently, I would support that law. But until that time, I support the 2,000-year-old definition of marriage, and that's exactly what I would explain to Andrew or Sarah, who are sitting here in the front row um, tonight. Uh, and I know what they would understand is that their father loves them. And that's the most important thing. These what would happen if your kids were gay questions are something that I find to be, in retrospect, pretty raw gotcha material. Chrissy chooses to take the compassionate road, but he doesn't really make a meal out of it. I would say post-2016, any Republican who gets a question like this probably turns it back on the questioner. This is the kind of question that a, 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 an audience would reward you for saying, that's an unfair question and I don't like it and blah, 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 blah. Here's another good Christie timing moment. Respond, please. Yes. Um, Matt, listen, here's the way it'll happen. If Senator Bourne were ever to become governor, she will follow the same path that she has followed for her entire career in Trenton. She will raise taxes. She will raise fees and she'll do it on everybody. I've heard her many times tonight say not to the middle class or the poor, but she voted to raise the sales tax, which anybody who buys anything in New Jersey that's covered by the sales tax has to pay that increased sales tax. So what I would say to the voters in New Jersey is be careful. Keep your hands on your wallet, because to pay for all her extravagant promises, Senator Buono will raise taxes. Well, the governor says that we, I tax and spend. Well, he's using Senator, your hard-earned tax Sen dollars and spending it on protecting millionaires from paying their fair share for middle-income middle, sex, middle uh, income property tax relief. Anything else, Governor? No. Okay. <laughs> Michael Aaron. I got to say, the man in this performance is stout. He doesn't fade. He gets sharper as time goes on. And you can tell that probably from his legal background... He is there to keep focus. He comes across as naturally likable, not a television professional. And to give you an example of that, here's another clip of him being silly. This is in the end of the debate when they are getting Jersey specific questions. So the first question, for example, was if the Giants and the Jets play in the Meadowlands, why don't they have an NJ on their helmet instead of a NY for New York? So this is an example of Christie giving a fun and likable answer to a silly New Jersey-specific question. Think about this every time I drive down Route 1 to my mom's house in Lawrenceville. Um, the Jersey left, which I never knew was called that. Jug handle turns, all those counterintuitive signs that say all turns from the right-hand lanes. Apparently New Jersey has more of these than any other state, 600 of them. Do you support left-hand turns? <laughs> and do you have a horror story, like most of us do, about these jug handle turns? Ron, I love jug handles. <laughs> I've always loved jug handles. And until the day I die, I'm going to love jug handles. Which brings us to the big picture with Chris Christie. I think. 
he looks at everybody else in the 2016 race before Trump emerged and everybody in the race now except Donald Trump. And he says they are all unlikable dip S's. I'm the only person that can get on television and make them like me. And I am diametrically opposed to Donald Trump. If you want an anti-Donald Trump option, I am here for you. Now, based on our current polling, it doesn't seem like a lot of people want an absolutely diametrically opposed Donald Trump option. Donald Trump is very popular. So to totally go against him is to throw away whatever electability advantage he has. But I think from Donald Trump's perspective, he looks at Chris Christie as the Winklevoss twins. Sure, you were really likable in 2013, but then the Bridgegate stuff blew up and you left New Jersey extraordinarily radioactive. And then you ran for president. And when you had a chance to go up against me, you destroyed my opponents, including Marco Rubio. In short, you might think that you are as fast as me. You might think that you're as likable as me. You might think that you are a dynamic politician that can capture the nation. But if you were gonna be president, you would have been President Christie in 2016. You wouldn't have let some jamoke with, you know, more scandals than there are happy haunts in the haunted mansion to waltz into the White House. I'd be doing debate prep for you instead of you bowing and scraping for me before my son-in-law absolutely nuked all of your political ambitions and banished you to the hinterlands of the ABC This Week commentary desk. Is Chris Christie likable? Yes. Is he a good debater? Yes. But as much as I love debates, I don't know if the best debate performance in the world is enough to change the race in Chris Christie's favor. And that'll wrap it up today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to email the show, and again, I will be doing, send me legal stuff. I want the lawyers, the lawyers to email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Do me a favor. I know your lawyers love writing. So a uh, uh, hundred words at max to summarize it and then write whatever you want. But just a hundred words up top. Legal minds, write in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you want to see me live on the internet, I'm there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, px3live.com. You can share this podcast, px3podcast.com. Support me with a one-time donation. A lot of you guys did this for the uh, If I Were the Devil monologue. Thank you, guys. I know I need to do more stuff like that. When I wrote that, 
I was like, people are going to love it, but I always feel a little self-conscious because I'm like, I don't know. Do people really want, do they want a little old me to do creative writing? You like me. You really like me. And you gave me money for it. And I appreciate it. If you are enjoying debate prep and uh, you don't want to sign up for the Patreon, the way that you support the show, paypal.me slash pay jury on PayPal on Venmo. It is Justin dash young dash 20 cash app is px3 cash.com and no, sorry, not, not dot com, just px3 cash on cash app. Now send me something in the mail, PO box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is post office box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets your bonus podcast. Sorry, two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule and our $10 tier. Get your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, Niemeister, C. Garcia, Matthew T. Elbasso, John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Bugs Life, Unsafe DB Level, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop, DP4, Bongo, Catherine, Todd, Evoke Gloria Young, Fork King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Aegis Arslanian, Blue Friend, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Nomadic Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you want your name read at the end of each and every episode on our free feed. Only one place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. So this is weird. Normally I say have a good weekend and and in all likelihood this will be the last free episode this week. But maybe it won't. I don't know. For patrons, you're going to get one tomorrow. So more thoughts on the Trump indictment and uh, so much more. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this is the only show that dares discuss Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.